0: We're going to read together from the letter to the Hebrews, which this evening is chapter 10, and we've come to chapter 10, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. Last week, we just looked at a couple of verses, the start of verse 19, 19, 20, 21, but we're going to try this evening and take in the whole passage to the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 10, it's page 1007 in uh, the Black Bibles, or 1194 in the large print. Let's hear God's Word together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins." but instead a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen. I have a very simple conviction as a pastor, which is this. Most Christian people spend their Christian lives not realizing just how much God loves them. That's what I said to us last Sunday evening. Here's, here's what I want to begin with this week. I have a very pain, painful experience as a pastor, which is this, week by week realizing how many Christians who used to be here no longer are. Now, I don't mean the regular comings and goings of people, there's plenty of turnover, in a church family, but this is my 19th year in Aberdeen. All of that spent with this church family in one form or another, and some of you have been here as long as I have. You will know looking round the room how many Christian people are no longer here because they are no longer walking with Christ. That's what we're going to look at this evening in this very sobering passage. How does that happen? How does that happen that people who sit here, like you and I sit here, expecting to be here forever, one day actually are gone? Very sobering passage. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One one commentator I read this week said, there is no more hard-hitting passage in all of God's Word than these verses that we're looking at. Last week, like I said, just a couple of verses, but this evening I want to try and help us stand back a bit and see the shape of this whole passage to try and take it all in. And as always, friends, God is speaking to us, not simply concerned with our behavior, with what we do, He is primarily directing His Word at our hearts this evening, at who we are. Last week, the sermon was how to have a true heart. Remember it from verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart. And this evening, the passage is just as concerned with the deepest level of our beings. Look at verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls, preserve themselves, all of them in their entirety. See, that, that, that's the whole atmosphere of this letter, of this part of the letter. You see, up to now, it's been all about what the Lord Jesus has done to save us. That's what the writer has been showing us for 10 chapters. This is what Jesus has done to make us clean in heart and soul and body, how how He swapped places with us, how He offered up to God His perfect life for our imperfect life. And then in verse 19, after all of that, after everything that Jesus has done, we have this, therefore, because He did that, You can be confident in your access to God. You can be confident in your advocate with God. And yet, do you know what, says the writer, do you know what? It is astonishing to say this. It is incredible to say this. It's awful to have to say this. Many, many people throw that confidence away. Many people discard it. That's this evening's passage, that confidence to enter the holy places, confidence to have a friend in God's presence like the Lord Jesus. Many people take that and bin it, delete it, trash it. They walk away from their access to God. They turn their back on their advocate with God. The language here is they shrink back, they pull back. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. These people do not endure. They do not endure. So, like many of you over the years, I've watched many, many people shrink back, pull back, drop out walk away, throw away their confidence. And it, it happens in many different ways for many different reasons. There's usually, there's no, no one size identical procedure that people follow. It's for different reasons, but these dear folks always end up in the same place. No matter how they get there, they all arrive in the same destination they no longer love the Savior who washed them. They no longer look for His appearing for the day of His coming. In their present, the Lord Jesus has become worthless to them. And in their future, Jesus is irrelevant. A room like this, this evening, maybe that is you. Maybe that's the direction you're just beginning to to head in. It's very real, isn't it? Shrinking back can be slow. That's the main way, if I had to describe it. It's very rare that somebody is here one Sunday and gone the next. It's much more likely that it just begins to become ever so slightly more infrequent, and people begin to shrink back because following the Lord Jesus can be really tough, can't it? Really tough, I was speaking to a friend this week on the telephone. This is a friend who has been in Christian ministry for quite a long time, but has only recently entered into Christian leadership, being the the, the solo pastor of a church, a young, uh, a small church congregation. This experienced man said to me, he said, while I was part of a team ministry, he said, I never realized until you became the minister of a congregation just how many problems you have to deal with. How much stuff, he said, is just crossing my desk all the time. And he's young and new to it. I could hear the, the weariness in his voice. Christian ministry is hard. Many shrink back. Christian living is hard, isn't it, for all of us, whoever we are. I wonder if you followed the news uh, I'm sure it's been hard to miss, hasn't it, Nicholas Sturgeon's resignation? One of the most striking things has been the coverage of who might replace Nicholas Sturgeon. Did you notice the coverage about Kate Forbes, the Christian uh, politician, who many people say is the rising star in the party? Lots of things in her favour, apart from one thing: her Christian faith, her Christian beliefs. Whatever your politics, friends, wherever you are on the map this evening. Pray for somebody like that, for Kate Forbes. The The world that she is in and the world that she will enter, should she become first minister, is a savage world, a brutal world. Christian ministry is hard. Christian living is hard. Christian marriage is hard, isn't it? That my, my most favorite book on marriage or, or marriage counseling for uh, helping folks in difficulty in marriage. I think it's the most, the most brilliant book I've read on marriage. The title is, What Did You Expect? Question mark. What did you expect? Redeeming the realities of marriage. Being a Christian teenager at school is hard, incredibly hard. You can find yourself completely on your own, can't you? You're standing out like a sore thumb in school, n- not a pleasant experience for a teenager to have. So, so how do we do it? How, how do we have a heart that endures? Wouldn't that be beautiful to have a heart that endures? Imagine having a true heart. Lord, I'm with you. I'm I, I, With you, I can come into the Father's presence. I'm safe in God's presence. With you, I'm clean. I have a true heart. And, Lord, I have an enduring heart. I'm going to stay with you forever. I'm not going to leave your side. I'm never going to stop listening to your voice. I want to have an enduring heart. How do you do that? I want to give us three things this evening from these verses, three, three points. They don't, they don't match, they don't sound the same, uh, but I'll give you them anyway, and I'll, we'll come back to them as we go through. Number one, The writer wants us to carefully heed a terrible warning, carefully heed a terrible warning. Number two, he wants us to intentionally pursue one another. And number three, he says to us, remember how your past used to be all about your future, Remember how your past used to be all about your future. Here's the first one, carefully heed a terrible warning. Verse 26 onwards, well, all the way through to the end, isn't it, from verse 26 down to verse 39. And I wonder if it's possible here, friends, that actually we don't see what it is that makes the warning so serious, so terrible. Why is this warning so terrible? I think we can feel what is so serious here, can't we? It's It's really clear because the language is so strong, isn't it? Look at verse 30. For we know Him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we can have a heart that endures is by seeing and knowing that the Lord will judge His people who depart from Him. Isn't that so striking, verse 30? I think we're used to the first bit, aren't we? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we we think about the world out there that God is going to put right. But then and again, the Lord will judge His people. We tend to think judgment is out there, isn't it, on others? But this passage is all about how Jesus is coming back, and what will that mean for us, for His people? See it in verse 25, the day is drawing near. Look at it in verse 37 yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay and when he comes will he find me living by faith or will he find me rejecting him shrinking back from him it is possible to be at one time part of god's people but then to end up outraging the spirit of grace what a phrase that is in verse 29 to outrage the Spirit of grace. But, but why? Why does this judgment on the Lord's people come? What is it here in these verses that these people have done which makes judgment so inevitable? What, what is the warning that is so terrible that the real reason is there in verses 26 to 27. brothers and sisters, for your endurance, for my endurance, carefully heed the terrible warning of these verses. Let's read them again. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries here's the warning, that it is possible to take the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and to make it no longer effective. It's possible to do that. Is It's not an astonishing thing to say. To do something that means the sacrifice no longer remains. Just follow the logic of the verses. Put your eyes on it. If you do this, if you first of all receive the knowledge of the truth, and then having received it, you go on sinning deliberately, Jesus' sacrifice for sin no longer remains. Now, we've got to stand back and think about how on earth is that possible? How can we take something that the writer has been saying is so perfect, so effective, and actually render it null and void? What what can we possibly do to His finished perfect work to make it empty? I want to say to us this evening, friends, the greatest terror in the world, the greatest terror in the world is that there might be no sacrifice for sin nobody else fears that, nobody else worries about that, but God's people should fear that more than anything. No sacrifice for sin, no atonement. I've said it several times, haven't I? I think over the last, the last while in one way or another in sermons, hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the presence of God without a mediator, without a sacrifice, how how can somebody like me enter God's holy presence unless somebody cleans me from the inside out, unless I have a friend to take me into his presence, inside the holy of holies safely? And if there is no longer any sacrifice for sin, no means of making that happen, that is the greatest terror in the world how is it possible? How how can we do that? How can we take what Jesus has done and do something which means that sacrifice no longer remains? Well, let's start here. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean, first of all. Here's what somebody somebody else has said. They put it like this. This is not saying that if a Christian persists in sinning deliberately, you reach a point where Jesus' sacrifice kind of runs out, okay? It's not saying that you reach a point where the Lord Jesus says, I've paid for all your sins up to this point, but I'm not prepared to pay for them anymore, this far and no further. No, that's not what this verse is saying. What he's talking about is this, deliberate sin. When you know what is right, and you do the wrong anyway, continually, over and over again. You give yourself to it as a fixed, settled choice and direction of your life. When you do that, you cannot simply presume that the relationship will remain intact. You can't take what Jesus has done and say, yeah, yeah, that's amazing, thank you. If you did that for me, sacrifice for my sins, then I can do whatever I want. Is that right? Is that the deal? Amazing. Now, I think an illustration will help. Look at, it, look at it like this. Friends of ours years ago, back in Northern Ireland, they had this amazing experience. They told us this story about how they, they told their granddaughter, this was the granddad in the family telling us the story, they told their granddaughter, standing in the hallway, they showed their granddaughter grandma's beautiful vase standing on a stand in the hallway. And they said to their granddaughter, do not touch grandma's precious vase. Don't touch it. And off they went into the family gathering, and 15 minutes later, unbeknown to the little girl in the family, the granddaughter, granddad was watching as she walked back into the foyer of the house, looked at the vase, and pushed it off onto the floor. All seen by granddad who had warned his granddaughter not to push the vase onto the floor. Some of you are horrified. Others of you are thinking, well, I've got grandchildren. I know what they can do. Here's the most amazing bit. When the granddaughter was asked, what happened to grandma's precious vase? What do you think she said? The dog did it the dog pushed the vase off. And all the while, granddad saw everything that had happened. See, think about it this way. If at the moment that the child comes to that vase after having the warning from her loving granddad, and if she looks at that vase, so just imagine that children have these really complex thought processes in their mind. If she looks at that vase and she says, do you know what? I love granddad, and I know granddad loves me. Granddad is a soft touch. I know he told me not to do it, but what's he going to do? He's my granddad. He'll pay for the vase. He'll sacrifice to put the vase right. Forgiveness is his business, right? That's what granddads do. That's what grandparents are for, isn't it? I remember seeing a fridge magnet that said, if I knew having grandchildren was so much fun, I'd have had them first. It's, it's what grandparents do, isn't it? They forgive, they pay, they cover. Somebody else will pay for this. Well, imagine that granddaughter's surprise when after pushing over the precious that she was told not to push over she discovers that granddad is not going to pay for the vase to be replaced or fixed. She is going to pay for it herself, out of her pocket money. He told her, don't, and she sinned deliberately. She will pay. See, friends, verse 26, it's not talking about the sins that we all commit all life long, no matter how close we are to Christ. We, we all do that, don't we? It's why we have our confession of sin in our worship service every Sunday. We, we treasure it, don't we? we? We limp here. Lord, it's me again. Here I am again. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Wash me. Make me, make me new. No, that that is not what verse 26 is talking about. It's talking about the person who knows what the Lord Jesus has done and who comes eventually, slowly, over time to say to Him persistently, I don't care anymore. I don't care. I can do what I want. Everything will be okay in the end. Do you see what that kind of attitude does? Do you see what it does in verse 29? It attacks the person of Christ, doesn't it? Tramples underfoot the Son of God. It attacks the work of Christ. It profanes the blood of the covenant, and it attacks the Spirit of Christ, outrages the Spirit of grace. Persistent, deliberate sin is to say to the Lord Jesus and to what He's done, and to say to His Spirit, I'm not interested anymore. I don't need you. I don't want you. And what the writer's doing here, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater, isn't he? Verse 29, if you set aside the law of Moses in the Old Testament, if that led to death, how much worse is it to set aside and to walk all over Jesus Himself? See, which is worse, just to break any old vase when you know it's wrong or to break the vase that belongs to your special person, your grandma? Not all sins are the same. Not all sins are equally heinous. Treason against the monarch is worse than getting a parking ticket, isn't it? The writer is saying, taking the most beautiful person in the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, taking the most beautiful thing in the world that He did, His death on the cross, giving Himself up to us in death, and walking all over Him like dog dirt. To do that, oh, friends, it is an outrage against the Spirit of grace. What a phrase, the Spirit of grace that the one who died for us when we were his enemies, that the Spirit who calls us to him and gives to us what we do not deserve and we throw it back in his face and say, I'm not interested. Ah, friends, can I say to you this evening, maybe it's something you've never heard before, maybe you will never hear it again. I hope you will. If you stay with us here, you will hear it again. Be warned. Be warned. Be warned. For we know him who said, verse 30, vengeance is mine. I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But number two, heed the terrible warning. Number two, intentionally pursue one another. The warning is important for an enduring heart and intentionally pursuing the people in this room for the rest of your lives is part of having an enduring heart. Do you notice how verse 26 begins? It begins with that little word, for, because. So, what comes before verse 26? Go back to verse 23. "'Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful.'" And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, do you see how it works? Let's do verses 23, 24, 25. Let's do those things because if we go on sinning deliberately, in other words, we need to do the stirring one another up. We need to do the loving and good deeds because the reality of falling away and shrinking back from doing those things is so real. Not enduring is all too real, all too common. And it happens to believers when we do not do verse 23, we don't hold on to our confession. It happens when we do not do verses 24 and 25, when we do not encourage one another. One of my great sadnesses, I think about the people who are not here any longer, and I wonder, I just wonder sometimes if somebody had contacted to say, haven't seen you for a while, is everything okay? I wonder if it would have made a difference. I'm sure it would in some cases. So, friends, here is how to have an enduring heart. Here is how to make it to the end. You you see what's at the heart of it, verses 24 to 25. See what's at the heart of it. Twice, we're told, one another. One another. There's two one anothers, and sandwiched between them is that little word, together. You, You know how to make it to the end? You know who's going to be there at the end? people who have held on to other believers, people who haven't tried to go it alone, people who've learned to stop thinking the Christian life is all about me and the Lord Jesus, and instead realize it's about us and the Lord Jesus. We before me. That's how you endure. I I think what it means is verse… 24, 25, I mean, look at it. It it means you look around the room on a Sunday and you think, who can I encourage? I mean, think about it this way. Imagine if we each, everybody in this room, set ourselves the task of intentionally every single Sunday encouraging at least one other person. Not just imagining we've encouraged them, but actually, out loud, physically, with our words, with our actions, encouraged one other person, I'm not going to go home until I've done it. Wow, can you imagine the effect? It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Somebody has said that grumbling, complaining is the devil's music, but encouragement is the sunshine of the soul. Isn't that true? Encouragement encouragement the recognition that the other believers with me in this room are human beings whose energy levels and confidence levels in the Lord are going to deplete and run low. And encouragement is the recognition that I'm not going to take you for granted, but I'm going to speak the truth to you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to do good works to you and for you. When we do that to one another, oh, the effect the effect on our hearts. I heard this wonderful story. Let me read this to you. The journalist, Robert Maynard, he, he, he told this story from his childhood. He told it in the New York Daily News. He said, as a young boy, he was walking to school one day and he came upon an irresistible temptation. Now, I think every young boy or maybe even 47-year-old man has. When you see a piece of fresh, wet cement in the road... And Robert Maynard, as a young boy, he immediately stopped and he began to write his name in the wet cement. And suddenly he became aware of a shadow standing over him, a ginormous man holding a garbage can lid. The biggest stonemason he had ever seen grabbed him and picked him up and said to him, Are you trying to spoil my work? Maynard remembers babbling something about just wanting to put his name in the ground but a remarkable thing happened just then. The mason released the boy's arm, his voice softened, his eyes lost their fire. Instead, there was now a touch of warmth about the man. What's your name, son? Robert Maynard. Well, Robert Maynard, the sidewalk is no place for your name, if you want your name on something, you go into that school and you work hard and you become a lawyer and you hang your shingle out there for all the world to see. Tears came to the young boy's eyes, but the mason was not finished yet. What do you want to be when you grow up? A writer, I think. Now the mason's voice, stone mason's voice, burst forth in tones that could be heard all over the schoolyard. A writer. A writer, be a writer, be a real writer. Have your name on books, not in this sidewalk. Robert Maynard continued to cross the street. He paused, and he looked back, and the mason was on his knees, smoothing over, repairing the damage that his scratching had done. He looked up, and he saw the young boy watching him, and he repeated to him, be a writer. Oh, the power of the encouraging word. We never forget it, do we? Many of us many of us carry forever the wounds of the opposite types of words, the discouraging words people have said to us. Think of the power of the opposite. Oh what we can do to each other this evening. Your heart will endure when someone encourages you. Look look what else the writer says in verse 26. Do you know why some people shrink back and fall away and start sinning deliberately? Do you know why it happens? Because they neglect meeting together. They just neglect it. They They don't plan for it. They don't make it intentional. Sometimes, friends, you can physically see drift happening right in front of your eyes. Sometimes it's that obvious. I think very few people fall into verse 26, very few people fall into verse 26 without first just decreasing their attendance at church. They're just not there as much as they used to. I want to say to us, friends, two services on a Sunday like this, being here in the evening, it is not too much for us, is it, to be like this week in, week out, do you know why it's not too much? Because we love one another. We're here to encourage each other, to, to build one another up. We are so spread out, aren't we? The, 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 the single, the piece of technology that has changed church life more than anything in the several hundred years is the car, it meant the death of the parish, didn't it? The death of bonded communities. We are spread out from each other. We can go where we want, travel as far as we want. And brothers and sisters in church, we only see each other once a week. And this writer says do not neglect that, don't pass that up for other preferences. I want to encourage you, I want to be with you, I want to stir you up to good works. If, if I make my attendance just occasional and rock up when I feel like it or put other things ahead of church on a Sunday, if I do that, this writer says, you lose out. You lose. If you do that, we lose. We all lose out. Oh, friends, the power of encouragement in meeting together intentionally pursue one another. Here's the third thing, finally, to finish. Remember how your past used to be all about your future. I want to show you this, then I want to give you one final illustration to finish. Let me show you this. Look how it works, verse 32. Remember your past. See what he says? But recall the former days. Recall the former days. That can be a great way to endure, can't it? To get out the photo album. I don't know if people have photo albums anymore. Go back into your phone and all those digital images. Scroll back through your past. It can be a great way to help you endure. And yet, this isn't a trip down memory lane, is it? This isn't a trip down memory days with rose-tinted spectacles as you revisit the path bathed in the warm light of nostalgia. no. No, this is, remember the bad old days. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. What were those sufferings? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes you were partners with those who were being so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property." Isn't that that an amazing thing? Here is a warning about not nullifying Christ's sacrifice in your life. Here is an encouragement about how to endure, and here is a reminder that one way to endure is to remember that it is possible to suffer joyfully for being a Christian. These believers used to do that, You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Do you remember those days the writer sang? Do you remember? Do you remember what it was like to lose everything and to be joyful? These believers used to do that. The reason they used to do that is because they had sight of something that let them do that. Many commentators think verse 32, that the former days of suffering, many, many commentators think that is referring to the persecution under the Roman emperor Claudius in AD 49. Terrible suffering these believers endured. But in verse 32, that word struggle, that word struggle is literally the word athlesis, from which we get the word Athletic. the the writer saying, you were truly up against it, remember? The whole might of the Roman Empire was in your face right against you, and yet you grabbed it with both hands. You athletically grappled with that suffering. You stood up under it. You know, if we'd watched these Christians suffering, we would have said they were, I don't know, take your pick, just like Ireland versus France last Saturday. Two great teams going toe-to-toe with each other. Tremendous struggle on display. You didn't wilt under the pressure, the writer says. You didn't shrink back. You weren't scared. Many people wonder, don't they, particularly in Scotland at the minute, but in other parts of the world as well. Many people wonder what we're going to face in coming years as the Christian faith moves to the margins of society more persecution, perhaps, maybe, pastors in prison, possibly. Even if we don't face that, many others are already facing that, aren't they, in parts of the world today. How do you endure it? How do you grapple with it and stand up under it? Why did these believers endure? What does he say? Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Here's the reason. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you see it? Remember how in the past you used to know about your future. You used to know that all of this will pass, that what God is giving you, you cannot lose, that somebody can take everything you have and actually take nothing from you. Remember how you had your hope set on a future day. Here's the illustration. We were reading something with our children this week. I came across what I thought was a fantastic, fantastic illustration. Imagine the head teacher calls a child into his head teacher room, whatever it's called, headmaster's office, I don't know what it is, and says to the child, listen, you may have seen that everybody's on strike these days, and all the teachers are on strike, the cleaners are on strike, the cooks are on strike, and so we're going to keep the school going, and you are going to do everything. You're going to clean, cook, open the gates, have school running. Here's your bucket and mop, and off you go. The teacher calls a second child into the classroom and says exactly the same thing to child number two, hands her a bucket and mop and says, off you go. And as child number two is leaving the headmaster's office, the headmaster says, oh, by the way, at the end of this cleaning, both of you will receive 100 million pounds. What will happen in the hearts of both of those children, one who knows and one who doesn't? Grant the absurdity of the illustration, please, for a moment. What will happen in the hearts and minds of those children as they each suffer cleaning, slaving, sweating, working? One of them knows what is coming at the end. One of them will be crushed under the weight of what they've been asked to do, won't they? One of them will get there early every morning, working, serving, suffering, because they know what is coming. Oh, says the writer, you used to be like that. Once upon a time in your past, your future was everything to you, Do you remember the Lord Jesus in His teaching, the parable of the sower? He he, he scatters the seed. The hard path, the seed is taken away straight away. The rocky soil and the thorny soil, the seed begins to sprout, and for different reasons, it begins to sprout, and for different reasons, it never comes to fruition. It's choked. It starts well and ends badly. Oh, brothers and sisters, do not, please do not throw away your confidence. Do not throw away all that the Lord Jesus is to you and has done for you. I wonder if we know what it would be like to lose all our possessions. We can lose our possessions if we know we have better possessions. We don't mind losing everything if we know we're going to gain everything and keep everything forever. Oh, may God help us and keep us. Amen.